Let's open God's Word to Romans chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 11. Romans 4 will be our main text, but we are going to end uh, this morning at Hebrews 11, so you can find both passages now and keep a bulletin or something in Hebrews 11 because you will need it at some point. If you worship with us, if you're a member here or attend here regularly, you know that since it is the first day of the month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together in obedience to Christ's command, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, The Lord's Supper means many things. At the very least, it is a memorial, therefore. The Lord Jesus identified it as such. Do this in remembrance of me. And so from the prison to the palace, from the cellar to the cathedral, from the few to the many, we remember the Lord Jesus by participating of this bread and of this cup. It's a way to celebrate the past. The Lord Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he gave thanks, and we too give thanks. We remember what Christ has done. We celebrate the full significance of his death, of his burial, and his resurrection. It is also a way to enjoy the present. We eat bread. We drink from this cup. In doing so, it is a very real reminder that we require these things to sustain physical life. And that points us to what? The fact that we require Christ's blood and body to sustain our spiritual life. And so it is a way to celebrate or enjoy the present. And thirdly, it is a way to anticipate the future. And the Lord Jesus commanded us to do this until he returns. He has inaugurated his kingdom. Praise God. We are the beneficiaries in many ways of that reality right now. But we know something far greater is coming. The kingdom is inaugurated. But the kingdom is not yet consummated. And so we partake of this memorial in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. And so that's going to be the culmination of our worship this morning. Uh, We believe as a church that this is an ordinance. There are two visible ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper. And we believe that when they are accompanied by the proclamation of God's word, they are to some extent effectual. That is the spirit of God makes them effectual. He feeds us. He feeds our souls. And he nurtures our faith. He cultivates our faith. And so we're going to turn to God's word now. We're going to proclaim it. We're going to consider it. And then we'll bring our worship again to a culmination by participating of the supper together. And so follow along as I read in Romans chapter 4, a few verses beginning in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. 
But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. We are, here's where I want to begin today, we are susceptible to error. You are and I am. We might not want to hear that, but we are. We are very susceptible to error. There are a number of reasons for that, various contributing factors. Let me give you a few. Here's one. We are attracted to the sensual. We are a very sensory people. And drawn, therefore, to that which is sensual appeals to our senses. And therefore, we are drawn to the carnal. And if we are not careful, that can lead us into all sorts of trouble. Here's another reason. We are enamored with novelty. And therefore, we are drawn to the astonishing, what we perceive to be the astonishing, what, we appear, what, what appears to be um, different, what appears to be exceptional. And so because we're drawn to novelty at times, we will throw caution to the wind and chase after this and chase after that. Here's another reason. We are susceptible to relativism. In other words, we think we are all entitled to our version of the truth. You have your version. I have my version. Everyone has their version, and that's okay. That's relativism. We're also susceptible to mysticism. We think we discover truth through private intuition. I have a feeling. God has shown me. God has spoken to me. And away we go. Well, here's another reason. We are susceptible to pragmatism. We think we determine the value of truth by its perceived usefulness to us. Is that useful? Is that practical? Is that beneficial? Do I perceive that to be of any use to me? And that is how we gauge the veracity of things. I could add to that list for that and for many other reasons. And we need to acknowledge this and wrestle with it daily. I know I do. We have this ongoing vulnerability to error. That's one of the reasons. It's not the only reason, but it is one of the reasons why an elder, in the words of Titus chapter 1, verse 9, an elder must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And so there the Apostle Paul identifies the teaching office, and he says, look, it's, it's kind of simple. Uh, when it comes to teaching God's people, in particular the role of an elder, there are only two things going on. There are only two things happening. One is positive. He must instruct in sound doctrine. The other is negative. He must openly rebuke those who contradict. That's it. That is how an elder, that is how as a pastor in my case is to shepherd God's people. That is how we are to teach. Positively, we are to instruct in sound doctrine. Negatively, we are to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. 
We have an example of this, these, this very thing, of those two nuances, if you like, of what it means to teach and of the office of elder. We have an example of that in Paul's epistle to the Romans. He does both. He does both. He's teaching from beginning to end, but at times he does so positively and at times he does so negatively. And so at times he does so positively. And so, for example, in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, he instructs in sound doctrine. He explains the truth. And in that particular context, he explains the doctrine of justification. And he explains, look, we all stand guilty in God's sight. I do not care who you are. Yes, he is that blunt. I do not care who you are. I do not care when you lived. I do not care where you live. We all stand guilty before God because we have all, to some degree, rejected what he has made plain, obvious to us. And we are all under sin. But the doctrine of justification is this, that this great and glorious almighty God is prepared to change the verdict from guilty to innocent, He is prepared to change the sentence from death to life, and he will do so by grace. It will be his gift, the gift of God to you, a gift. It will be through faith. You won't do anything. I won't do anything because we can't do anything. We can't bring anything to the table. This is not a negotiation. This is not God weighing our lives in the balance to see if we've done more good than bad. No, we have already been tried. We have been found wanting and we are condemned and are by nature, Paul tells us, born into this world, children of wrath. But God is prepared to change the verdict. He is prepared to change the sentence. He's prepared to do so by grace. This is something I will do freely. He is prepared to do so whereby we receive it simply through faith. And he is prepared to do this. Why? In Christ, his beloved son. Christ, whom he displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Christ, when he was upon Calvary's cross, our sin reckoned to him. God's wrath upon him, where he died as a penal substitutionary sacrifice. And so Paul declares it. He instructs us in sound doctrine. But when we come into chapter four, it's no longer positive. Now his approach is kind of negative. And he rebukes those who contradict. He goes after those who undermine the doctrine of justification. And so in the first eight verses, he goes after those who dare to say the doctrine of justification, well, that's not found in the Bible. It's not found in the Old Testament. It's not found in the scriptures. And Paul corrects them. He rebukes them. He silences them. How? He appeals firstly to the greatest father, Abraham. He appeals secondly to the greatest king, David. He quotes an Old Testament scripture in reference to each, and he demonstrates that is exactly how those men were saved. God justified them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then beginning in verse 9 through to verse 12, he's still in this rather ornery mood as he defends the gospel. And as he defends the doctrine of justification. And here he goes after those who would dare twist what it means to be justified through faith. 
He goes in the context after Jews in particular, who rest upon circumcision, a physical right, who rest on the works of the law, who think that when it comes to justification, okay, it's by grace, okay, yes, I must believe, but I must also do this. I must contribute this. I must bring something. There has to be something in me that distinguishes me apart from the masses. And so Paul defends the truth, and he demonstrates what? In that context, that Abraham... He was justified 20 year, 29 years before he was circumcised. Therefore, his circumcision had nothing to do with his justification. There is no ordinance. There is no ordinance we obey. There is no right we perform. There is no level of church attendance or church membership. There is no certain kind of lifestyle. There is absolutely nothing under the sun that we can ever do as the reason for which God justifies us. And Paul, he goes after them. No, it is justification through faith. He is still in an ornery mood. In our verses, he is still defending the truth. You heard that expression, right? The best offense is a good defense. Isn't that how it goes? Played hockey as a youth. And our coach, oh, the poor man, he tried to hammer that into us. And off we would go on the ice. And all five of us, we would just, every lane to the net, we would just always rush the net. I can still hear him screaming. His voice through the ice rink, defense, defense, the best offense is a good, none of us ever bought into it. But I suppose it is true. It is certainly true when it comes to doctrine. Many times the best offense is a good defense. It is absolutely necessary to understand all these different ways of thinkings and subtleties and nuances, all of these things which will detract us from the truth. And in this situation in particular, those nuances and subtleties which will detract from, if not downright twist into oblivion, the doctrine of justification. In this section, verses 13 through 17, Paul is going after those who undermine in some subtle form what it means to be justified by God's grace. What's his argument? Notice, I'm going to ask three questions. In answering these three questions, we'll understand his argument. The first question is this. What is the promise? Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham. So he's still, he's still got Abraham in view. He's had Abraham in view ever since the verse, first verse. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. There's the promise. Promise given to Abraham that he would be heir of the world. Now you should furrow your brow and squint your eyes. And think, hmm, God promised Abraham that he would be heir of the world. Here's a problem. We never read that in the Old Testament. Where is that found? Where do we ever read those precise words in the Old Testament? Here's what we read in the book of Genesis, chapter 17, verse 8. God speaking to Abraham. I will give to you 
and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. That was the promise. At least that was the verbiage that was used when God gave this promise to Abraham. It was focused on a territory. It was focused on a very specific, well-defined strip of land, what we call the land of Canaan. But as we make our way through the Old Testament, we could go to so many different passages. I want us just to think in terms of Psalm 37, when the children of Israel are already in that land. They are already occupying the land. And listen to a couple of verses out of Psalm 37. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Another reference out of Psalm 37. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. They're already in the land. What does the psalmist mean, David, in that instance, when he speaks of the meek? He identifies a specific group of people. When he speaks of the meek, when he speaks of the righteous, he makes reference to the faithful, those who obey God in that context, in that psalm, and they are the ones who will inherit the land. Something is being developed here in terms of the promise. And then we come to the New Testament, and the Lord Jesus embarks on his public ministry. And in the Sermon on the Mount, and that, well, that well-known section of the Sermon on the Mount, known as the Beatitudes, the Lord Jesus utters these words, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. It's not what he says. What does he say? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Something is going on. You see, when God made that covenant with Abraham, he made it in very material terms. And it focused on three things. It focused firstly on his offspring, right? It focused, secondly, on a blessing, and it focused, thirdly, on a land. Those promises were realized, fulfilled in Abraham's descendants, physical descendants, that God did grant Abraham an innumerable offspring. We know them as the Jews. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we see that fulfillment. God promised a blessing. Well, we see that blessing, especially during the reigns of David and Solomon. And God promised them a land. We see that fulfilled in the language of 1 Kings 4, when Solomon collected tribute all the way from the river Nile to the Euphrates. All of these things knew a temporal fulfillment in that day, but they were not the end that was in view. That each of those promises pointed to something far greater. The offspring, as we've seen it in chapter 2, we've seen it again in chapter 3, Paul is making it clear here in chapter 4, the offspring were not Abraham's physical descendants, but his spiritual descendants, those who are of like faith with Abraham. The blessing is not some temporal blessing here on earth, bless me Lord, bless me Lord, bless me Lord, make me healthy, wealthy, and wise. The blessing is the gospel. It is salvation from damnation, and it is to know peace with God and the hope of eternal life. And the land is what? It is the earth. It is the new heavens and the new earth. In Adam, we lost our inheritance. 
which was what? Dominion over the earth. In Christ, what do we gain back? Our inheritance. Dominion over the earth. It is ours in Christ. It is ours by right now. But we will not enter into the full enjoyment nor fruition of it until our king returns in glory. Paul knows that. Paul understands that. Truth shines brightest in the New Testament. And now he declares it unequivocally. The promise to Abraham and his offspring. He's speaking of the spiritual offspring. It becomes apparent as we continue to read that he would be heir of the world. That in Christ, the seed of Abraham, Christ, and all who are one with him by faith, regain what was lost in our forefather, Adam. That's the answer to question number one. Question number two is this. When was that promise given? Timing is everything. When was the promise given? Follow along as I begin reading from the start of verse 13 again. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world. Paul emphasizes two things here. Think in terms of A, B, negative, positive. The promise that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law. That's when it didn't come through the law. He makes that very clear. Now B, the positive, but did come through the righteousness of faith. What's his point? His point is simply this. And remember, his audience is Jewish. Remember, if you were here last Sunday, we're standing with Paul outside of that courtroom on those steps. And he's arguing with this group of Jews who are having a hard time understanding what Paul is saying and fitting it into their skewed understanding of the Old Testament and the covenant and the promises. They just can't fit it in there because their thinking is, is all out of whack. It's distorted and it's twisted. And so Paul is now bringing clarity. And the clarity he is bringing is this. Look, this promise, this promise that Abraham Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the whole world. My fellow Jews, my fellow countrymen, I'm going to speak slowly in hushed tones, lean in, and please listen carefully. When did it come? It did not come through the law, through Moses. It came through the righteousness of faith. The law came 430 years after God made that promise to Abraham. So you can, all, you can fill in the blanks and you can almost imagine Paul working. Now, work with me, my friends. Work through it. If that's true, if this promise that we hold, all hold dear came 430 years before the law, it therefore means what? That the law has nothing to do with the promise that the promise is given to whom those who share what the righteousness of faith, those who are the true offspring of Abraham, those who are the true descendants of Abraham, those who are the true sons of Abraham. And I'm speaking of those who believe justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. The third question is this. How is the promise fulfilled? 
The answer begins at the outset of verse 14. And he demonstrates, Paul demonstrates that this promise is fulfilled in two key ways. Firstly, it is fulfilled by God's grace. We have that beginning in verse 14. Look at carefully at what he says. For, and now he speaks hypothetically. If it is the adherence of the law, so if it is those who are circumcised, and if it is those who rely on their works of righteousness, the works of law, and do their best, and think that they're obeying God. And so if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. In other words, if, if this is what he's saying, if the promise came through the law, then that necessarily means that the promise no longer exists. It no longer exists. Why? Look at what he says in verse 15. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. I know this is tricky. What's, 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 it's somewhat convoluted. What's, what's he saying here? Let me, try, let me try to illustrate. I'm driving up the highway here one afternoon in the pickup truck. And halfway up this, this, this highway, I pull over the side of the road, hop out of the truck. I've got my hunting rifle, and I, I climb a fence. And uh, it's private property. And I walk a couple hundred yards in, take a seat, and I start uh, hunting. What have I done? I have broken the law. And guess what? I know I'm breaking the law. You get it? Now, imagine the same scene, same scenario. I drive up there, see a spot I like, pull the truck over, grab my hunting rifle, start to hop over the fence, and all along this fence, every 10 feet, there's this sign posted, private property, no trespassing, trespassers will be prosecuted. I kind of wave my fist at it, better still, I unload on one of those signs and blow it right off the fence, and I hop the fence and I walk and I find a nice place to hunt. Do you see the difference? In the first case, I have disobeyed. In the second case, what have I done? I am guilty of terrible transgression. My friends, that is what the law does. And my friends, that is all the law does. Even before the law, people were sinners. Even before the law was given at Sinai to Moses, people disobeyed God. Even before the law, people were accountable for their sin. We saw that back in Romans chapter 2, that the law is actually written where? On man's heart. And we know it intrinsically. We know it inherently. But the law was given at Sinai. Why? To compound our guilt. God has placed, if you like, in the cosmos, this huge sign, private property, no trespassing, trespassers will be prosecuted. He has made it plain. The law is what? It actually serves, Paul says it there at the start of verse 15, to bring wrath. Well, my friends, if that is what the law does, and you actually think that it is by keeping that law that the promise will be fulfilled, guess what? The promise is now void. The promise no longer exists because you don't have a chance in eternity of keeping that law. All that law does is show you your utter sinfulness. 
All it does, it serves to bring you to an end of yourself and show you the nature of your sin before a holy God. All it does is bring wrath. And that, my Jewish friends, is what you want to stand upon? That is what you're putting your hope in? If it does, we can no longer talk a promise. The promise no longer exists. But then there's a hypothetical situation number two, isn't there? Read again from verse 14, the start. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why, here it is, hypothetical situation number two. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace. And this is wonderful, the title for today's sermon, be guaranteed to all his offspring. It does not depend on you. It does not depend on me. Do you remember Paul's words back in Romans chapter 3 verse 24? God justifies us as a gift freely. Do you remember that word freely? And what that word actually means? It is the idea of without a cause. God does not find some cause in you as to why he justifies you. There is no reason in you. There is no factor. There is no motive. There is nothing that compels him in us to justify us, to change that verdict from guilty to innocent, to change that sentence from death to life. No, it is by grace. It is a gift. And because the promise is by grace, accomplished by grace, it is what? It is absolutely guaranteed. But there's something more. There's a second way in which the promise is fulfilled. It comes out in the latter half of verse 16. Now God's grace is no longer primarily in view, but his power. Read again with me from the start of the 16th verse. That is why it depends on faith. In order the promise may rest, rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not the physical offspring, those who are of like faith with Abraham, not only to the adherents of the law. We're not talking about Jews. We're not talking about those who are circumcised, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a male, female, boy, girl. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what you've done. It, 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 with God, there is no distinction. There is no distinguishing factor in you or reason in you for which God bestows this favor upon you. It is by grace. And look what he says. Not only I, as the, Abraham was father of us all, as it is written... And here he quotes again from the book of Genesis, chapter 17, verse 5. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Again, there is a temporal fulfillment, material, and there is a spiritual, eternal fulfillment. That promise in Genesis 17, 5, that he would, God would make Abraham the father of many nations, that he would give him a son. It was granted temporally, wasn't it? Immediately. The birth of Isaac. And Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, Israel. 
And uh, all of these tribes and even Gentiles being brought into the nation of Israel and made part of that covenant. That yes, Abraham did become the father of many nations. And that was a work of God's power, wasn't it? In the case of Abraham, called it, God did call into existence things that did not exist because Abraham was as good as dead when God gave him that promise. Sarah, well, she was even worse off. Apparently, if we go back and read the narrative. They were way beyond childbearing age. age. But God, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, Abraham and Sarah, as though they were dead, he gave them Isaac. He called into existence the things that do not exist, a very temporal material fulfillment. My friends, it points to something far greater significant. The Lord Jesus Christ who has called us into existence. The Lord Jesus Christ in whom we are made alive. The Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we are made the offspring of Abraham, the spiritual descendants of Abraham, and the true and only heirs of the promises given to Abraham, and it is accomplished by the power of God. Think of what we were. Think of the darkness in which we were groping around. Think of our spiritual ignorance and our rebellion against God. And yet we see God himself fulfilling the promise by his grace and by his power. Summed up, four statements, here they are. God has made a promise. That is statement number one. The accomplishment of God's promise rests on his grace. That is statement number two. Number three, the accomplishment of God's promise rests on his power. And here is statement number four. We receive God's promise through faith. That is all Paul is saying. That is the point he is seeking to drive home. I asked you to find, I asked you earlier to find the book of Hebrews. Do you still have it? Look at what we read in Hebrews chapter 11. We glanced at this briefly in the adult Bible class earlier. Look at what the author of that epistle pens in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith. Noah, right? Seth, Abraham, Isaac, you know, even later, David, Moses. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They never received them. But having seen them, in other words, they understood these promises and greeted them from afar. They embraced them. They welcomed them. They cherished them. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You know, we're in a very different situation from our forefathers, those who lived prior to the cross. Yes, they were justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That is on the basis of what Christ would accomplish from their vantage point upon Calvary's cross. We live this side of the cross. We live this side of the cross in the full anointing and pouring out of the Holy Spirit, being made one with Christ by faith and entering into now the, the reality of these blessings and these promises which Christ has given to us. And Paul tells us that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places and blessed there with what? Every spiritual blessing. 
And yet even we, in this era, this time period, which far surpasses what the patriarchs or anybody in the Old Testament ever understood or enjoyed, even now we are still looking where? Forward to the full fulfillment of the promise. We live by hope, confident expectation that all Christ has given and imparted to us by right. Someday we will enter into the eternal enjoyment of it all. There's a story told by a preacher a long time ago. Here it is, and listen carefully to this. Some ages past, there was a man who wanted to cross the frozen St. Lawrence River. Now the man had his doubts about whether the ice could hold him. So he decided to test it by placing his hand firmly upon it. Afterwards, having mustered up a modicum of faith, he got down on his knees and began to shuffle, albeit gingerly, across the ice. When he got to the middle of the frozen river where he was trembling with fear, he heard a crashing noise behind him. When he turned around, he saw a team of horses pulling a carriage and making their way down to the river. Upon reaching the river, the horses with carriage and tow didn't stop, but bolted right onto the ice and well past him while he remained there on all fours, turning a deep crimson. What was his problem? He did not. This is a believer who does not understand the nature of the promises. That the promises, oh my friend, get this please, And as I like to say, get it good. The promises rest upon the grace of God. And the promises rest upon the power of God. And we are simply encouraged to believe. Our Father, we do pray that you would give us such faith and enlarge such faith in our hearts this very day. Help us as we read and hear and study your word. And as we come face to face with your great plans and purposes, as we come face to face with the God who has declared that he knows the end from the beginning and who has declared that your plans, your counsel will be accomplished, that this might impart to us great hope as we look forward with longing and anticipation like those who have gone before us as we see yet the full fulfillment of these promises to be realized. And as we receive them and greet them from afar, may we understand that we are but sojourners and pilgrims in this present age. And may this shape us and form us and mold us as you conform us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.